Elijah Jones. His name is Elijah, but he goes by Elijah. And uh, we stayed at his house um, just a night or two after we had packed everything to move to Iowa. He was a deacon at Shiloh Baptist Church where I was serving as youth pastor for 11 and a half years. When we left, he looked at me. And he kind of leaned down and got in my eyes and he said, This country needs revival. And he said, It needs to begin in the heartland of our nation. That's where we live, isn't it? This is the heartland. As Brother Paul was praying, I thought, man, what if the revival that swept across this nation, a great awakening that we've not had in several hundred years, began in Ankeny with a group of men who began to get serious about the pursuit of God? Man, that that prayer, that's the prayer of my heart this morning. And I know God can do that. Turn, if you would, to Judges 2. Our text is going to be really Joshua 24, but I want, to, I want to start in Judges 2, thinking about hitting the mark and living our lives with generations in mind. Man, there ain't no wilder ride than raising kids, is there? We, uh, Brandy and I, of course, we have five children and a grandmommy. And I remember one day, me, I, was, I was in a restaurant with Paul Robert. I think it was like maybe Wendy's or something. And we were standing there and they had some music playing in the background. And we, Brandy and I, for many years, before we had kids, we just, we felt convicted that our music needed to be given to the Lord. And so we just only listen to music that's Christ-centered and God-exalting. And that's just a conviction that we have in our family and so we began with our, you know, with Paul Robert and Laura as they were kids, first two, that we began to talk to them about our conviction about music, and we just didn't listen to secular music. So we're standing there at the counter in Wendy's, and this song is playing, and, you know, and, and, and Paul Robert, and he's always had a loud, booming voice, and he tapped me on the shoulder. He said, hey, Dad, is that some of that sexual music? Secular, son. Secular is the word. <laughs> Two or three nights ago, we were having family devotions, something that I've been very committed to, tried to be for a long time. And um, my, my youngest son, Luke, he's 10, and he is an amazing reader. I mean, he's just a very good reader. And every night, he wants to read the devotion. And generally, a lot of times, I'll let him read because I feel like it's, you know, it's good for me to affirm him in that and prepare him to lead his family one day. And, and so we're, we use this book that uh, actually Tom Nesbitt gave me. I highly recommend it. It's called Discovering Jesus in the Old Testament. It's by a gal named Nancy Guthrie. But I highly, highly recommend that book. But anyway, it's 365 ways you can see Jesus in the Old Testament. So I said, okay, Luke, you can read. You know, he comes, he... No, actually, I hand him the book. No, I, I take that back. He's sitting right beside me, and he's, he's reading. And so he says, he begins, the title is Born of a Woman, and it says, Eve took to heart God's promise that her offspring would crush the offspring of the serpent, so that even 
though even through uh, so that even though childbearing would involve pain, it would also bring hope. Quote, Adam had sexual relations with his wife. And Luke stopped and he said, Dad, what's that? Brandy looks at me and she's like, Seriously? You let him read that one? And I said, Luke, just keep reading, son. He said, no, Dad, what is that? I said, well, son, it's, when, it's, how you, it's, it's how you make a baby. Now, just keep reading. He said, no, Dad, what do, what do you mean? How do you make a baby? I mean, it's just going deeper and deeper. I said, give me the devotion. I just read the rest of it. But, you know, we need, we need to be willing to have those conversations. Um, John David, he was sitting over here last night. And uh, they had a commitment today. They couldn't be here. But he's 12. And we've already begun to talk with him about purity and guarding his eyes and his heart and his mind. And about two or three months ago, he, he, one morning, he came to me and Brandy. And he said, can we talk? I said, sure. And he said, well, I, he said, I... I had this dream last night. It was horrible. He said, I got up in the middle of the night. And I had to go in the bathroom and pray. And he said, um, well, it was about pornography. And I began to, my heart began to, you know, just, I feel like I've been gut punched, you know. And I, I'm like, he said, well, Dad, there was this image in my mind. I'm thinking, ah, somebody's shown him porn. And, you know, he's, he's got this image. And I said, well, what is it, Bubba? I said, just... Just tell us about it, man. No, you're not in trouble. Let's talk. And he said, well, he said, it was just this image. And, and I knew that it, it was causing me trouble. And it shouldn't be in my mind. And so I just wanted to give it to God. And I said, where did you see the image? And he said, well, Dad, I saw it at the mall when we were there yesterday. Walking by that store, Victoria's Secret. And so here I am thinking some kid has shown him porn. And he's wrestling with an image he saw walking down the mall between me and Brandy. And so guys, we better get intentional about some strategies. And I recognize that we can't, you know, like we can't protect him and put him in some kind of a, you know, a, of a, zip-up suit, you know, where he can't see anything. So Brandy and I, we're, we're working with John David, and we're thinking about, okay, next time we go to the mall, man, we want to be intentional and not put you, any of us, really, in, in a situation where maybe there could be, an image could get burned in there, you know. And so we're just trying to teach him to think ahead, strategically and intentionally, to have, to have victory. Because I'm just realizing there's, there's some young men in the tent with me in my home. Last night we talked about passing the mantle of leadership from Joshua to Moses. And this, the whole idea that this transfer is inevitable, it's, it's immeasurably important. And um, we just talked about the, the fact that Moses helped Joshua get the right vision of man. And when you get the right vision of man, you realize victory comes from the Lord. And Moses helped Joshua get the right vision of God. And when you get the right vision of God, you realize the glory belongs to the Lord. That the victory comes from the Lord and that the glory belongs to the Lord. 
Now, um, the question today is, is not, will there be another generation of leaders? There will. There will be another generation of leaders. The question today is, where will, how will those leaders lead? And so look at Judges 2. Uh, pick up in verse 8. Now, now we're on the other end of Joshua's life. It says, Then Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in, in timnath Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. In verse 10, All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt who, and followed other gods from among the peoples of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he gave them into the hands of, the, of plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely Distressed. And this has got to be one of the saddest passages in the Bible. Judges 2, 10 through 15. If I would say to you, how many of you guys would raise your hand and you would say, you know, here's what I really desire for my kids, for my grandkids. I really hope they serve idols. I really hope that they live a life of evil right in front of God and everyone. That's just what I want. None of us have our hands up. None of us would say, you know, I just really hope my kids abandon God. I just really hope my kids, here's what I want. I want the anger of God to burn against my kids. Here's what I want for my grandchildren. I want the Lord's hand to be against them for evil. Here's what I want. I just hope they become severely distressed. None of us want that. No parent, Christian or not, wants their kids to spiral down the toilet and become severely distressed. And yet, here we are, the first generation following Joshua ends up to be the first generation in a 300-year spiral down the toilet. And what makes it just so ironic is the book of Joshua is this book of success, this book of, that begins with Joshua rallying the Israelites and there's unity and for the first time in 40 years they renew the covenant relationship with Yahweh and, and there's this symbolic act of circumcision and there's the Passover meal and they take Jericho and then one by one there's the conquest and it's just a, it's an amazing story of victory. When the, after they crossed the Jordan, the you know, God had, been, God had sent manna all those years. And, and after they, they crossed the Jordan, they, they, they start eating the fruit of the land. I mean, you think manna, man. 
the Bible says manna tasted like cakes baked with oil. Oil, I guess, is the way we pronounce that. <laughs> cakes baked with oil. And, and you know what that is. That's the Hebrew word for Krispy Kreme. I mean, they ate Krispy Kreme for 40 years. But, you know, after 40 years, somebody's starting to want a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit, aren't they? Right? And so they get into the promised land and they begin to eat bacon, egg, and cheese biscuits. They begin to eat the fruit of the land. And there's just this great, glorious story of victory. And then we get into Judges. And the question that I'm left thinking, and I I want you and I to ask today is, what happened? Isn't that like a valid question? What in the world happened? As I was a kid, I remember sitting downstairs. You remember our house on Chestnut Log there in Lithia Springs? And we had a basement, and it was kind of a a little bit of a man cave. We'd sit down there and watch Monday Night Football. And I remember in the late 70s watching a former... UGA guy, where's Brett? A former Georgia Bulldog named Fran Tarkenton. Anybody remember that guy? And I can remember watching Fran Tarkenton throw touchdowns to a guy named Ahmad Rashad. Anybody remember him? And I don't know why, man, being from Georgia, but I was a Vikings fan. I liked the Vikings, and I would always pull for them. I think I liked their helmets more than anything. But, by the way, any Vikings fans in the house... Okay, some of y'all out there with me. So, you know, I was just thinking, in case you missed it, the Eagles destroyed the Vikings. <laughs> 38 to 7, I think it was. And so, I, you know, I think the Vikings have one question. What happened? The Star Tribune in Minneapolis said this. As the Vikings began the long process of trying to return to the NFC Championship game and win it in 2019, they're forced to contend with the questions that the Philadelphia Eagles raised about their top-ranked defense by racking up 456 yards and 31 offensive points in the conference title game on Sunday. And so while the Vikings are asking, what happened in Philadelphia? I want to ask, what happened in Judges? And what I found when I studied this, this text is it's actually something that happened in Joshua 24. Will you turn there? Joshua 24, just a page or two back to the left. Joshua has gathered all the leaders, all the tribes of Israel together at this place called Shechem. And he's kind of giving them his final charge. And he begins with this message reminding them of God's hand of faithfulness. And so let me just read a few verses beginning in verse 1. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers. And they presented themselves before before God. Joshua said to all the people... Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. And to Isaac... 
I gave Jacob and Esau, and to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst. And afterward, I brought you out. Now look at verse 6, because verse 6 is very important exegetically, because it shows us exactly who Joshua was talking to. I, so, so Joshua says, quote, quoting the Lord, I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So now we, we see Joshua is talking to the next generation. Joshua is talking to these people who were children... Crossing the Red Sea, some of them not yet even born. They were born in the wanderings. And so in the verses that follow, Joshua continues to review everything that God has done for his people. Now look at verse 14. And this is kind of the text verse that I want us to think about this morning. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And there's a phrase in that verse that originally was on my heart as the title for this weekend. A year plus ago. As I was in my quiet time and I read that verse and I just felt like the Lord said, that's it. That's, that's, you ought to look at that for the theme and you ought to pitch that to the guys that, that helped do the men's conference. Put away the gods. And I remember talking to, you know, pitching that idea out there to Chris McRae and some other guys and they're all just kind of looking at me like, I ain't sure that's going to resonate well with put away the gods. And so I began to, you know, hear there, them, and we, we began to maybe craft a different title, but this really is the heart behind hitting the mark. Put away the gods. And then it says here, which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. So I want to call your attention to that. These aren't new gods. These are the gods that their fathers served. And I don't know if you realize it or not, men. But the entire time that Israel was wandering in the wilderness, idolatry was a major issue. Remember Stephen was stoned there in Acts 7. After making, just talking about God and the gospel and and everything that God had done for his people. And I want to read a little portion of what Stephen said in Acts 7, beginning in verse 39. You can just listen. He said, Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Did you know, by the way, you can sit in church with your heart turned back to Egypt? And Stephen said this, Saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt. We don't know what happened to him. And at that time they made a calf and, and brought a sacrifice to the idol. And were rejoicing in the work of their hands. 
Verse 42, but God turned away and delivered them up to serve the hosts of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch. This pagan false god to which they would sacrifice their children. And the star of the god Ramphah. The images which you made to worship, I also will remove you beyond Babylon. And so what Stephen is reminding the people is that this this pattern of idolatry tends to be generational. I want you to write that down. Idolatry tends to repeat itself generationally. Joshua said... Put away the gods which your fathers served. Now you know um, verse 15 in Joshua 24. Some of you can quote it. It's a very famous verse. Joshua said, If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua says, regardless of what you guys do today in Shechem, even if the whole world turns away from God, me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And I imagine that was a powerful moment. I imagine. I mean, I I thought you guys, when I said that, would all jump up and cheer and clap and bang the chairs on the ground. But I'm thinking that's probably what they did. Like, that's a powerful sermon. Probably everybody's like, preach! Hallelujah! Amen! But I want you to look at verse 16. The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is He who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did these great signs in our sight and persevered us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. The Lord drove out before us all all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land we also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. And so, the people, well, they did. They jumped up and they clapped and they banged the chairs and they said, Preach! Yeah, we're with you. Amen. We will serve the Lord. But we just saw what happened in Judges chapter 2, didn't we? To that generation. And so I'm scratching my head. I'm like, what happened? Well, look at verse 19. Joshua 24. Then Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve the Lord. And I'm like, how does he know that? What's going on here? And so I just keep reading. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. 
He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do to you harm and consume you after He's done you good. The people said to Joshua, No! But we will serve the Lord. And in verse 22, Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve Him. And they said, We are witnesses. Look at verse 23. This is so important. Joshua said, Now, therefore, put away the foreign gods, and underline this, which are in your midst. Joshua knew they were there. And incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God and we will obey His voice. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and he took a large stone and he set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be for a witness against us for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. Thus it shall be for a witness against you so that you do not deny your God. And then Joshua dismissed the people each to his inheritance. And so this seems like a great day. This seems like a powerful sermon. All the people are like, yes, Joshua, we will serve the Lord. Now, when you study your Bible, you know, you remember context is king. And that every word is important. And so I, I want to help you with the context here just a little bit. The, the, the geographical context. This is going on in Shechem. And there's a reason that Joshua has gathered everybody at Shechem. And it comes out of Genesis 35. And you can just listen or you can turn. But in Genesis 35, Jacob, son of Isaac, is called by God to gather his family and go to Bethel. Bethel, his house of God. And Jacob's family's been in turmoil, backslidden. They've been fraternizing with the pagans and, and in the land and... And the idol-worshipping people of Canaan. And Jacob's daughter gets raped. Maybe you remember that. And then Jacob's sons go on a killing spree to avenge their sister. And it's just dysfunction everywhere you look. It's a mess. And God says, Jacob, get your family in line and go to Bethel. And in Genesis 35, verse 1, there's kind of this renewal of the covenant. And God says to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Listen, see if you recognize this. Put away the foreign gods which are among you. They're in your midst. And purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. 
Now look at verse 4 of Genesis 35. Or just listen. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had. And the Bible says they went another step. And the rings which were in their ears. Why'd they do that? Because those were potential ingredients to make more foreign gods. And Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Shechem was an idol cemetery. Shechem was a graveyard full of idols. And Joshua brings all the people at the end of his life to this place where centuries past, Jacob's family has surrendered their idols and they've turned back to God. And Jacob buried all of the idols. And Jacob said, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst. And now here's Joshua centuries later standing and he's saying to the people, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst. Now, I won't take the time to go back and read Joshua 24 to you. But what you'll notice is when all the people are standing and amening and clapping and hallelujah, we will serve the Lord. There's not one mention of any burial of a single idol. It's not there. And so what we find is Joshua 24, the people are all talk. They're just blowing hot air. And so I, I kind of pictured Joshua standing there in Shechem preaching. And he's probably got a shovel in his hand. And I think he's probably got a shovel in his hand because he's already dug a hole under the oak. And I think he's standing there with this shovel and he's expecting guys to come forward and, and throw beer bottles in and worldly music and lottery tickets and deer rifles and golf clubs and car keys and tobacco and dirty magazines and, and NASCAR tickets and checkbooks. And, and Jacob's, uh, jo, uh, Joshua's expecting this. But it doesn't happen. And so Joshua sets up a, a headstone there. The problem is the tomb is empty. Yeah, that's usually a good thing. But not in this case. The casket's empty. Now, as I prepared and, and studied, I, I began to wrestle with a question. What is idolatry? I'll be honest, I really, I really struggled to try to like wrap my mind around exactly what is it. And so I, 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 went, I got my, some of my theology books out. And Millard Erickson, um, I've got a little book. It's called Concise Dictionary of Christian Theology. And I, I started reading through there. And I, I, just, I turned to idolatry. I'm like, Millard will tell me. And so Millard Erickson says this, idolatry is... The worship of an idol. I'm like, man, that, that clears it all up. 
So, I, so then I turned to idol. I'm like, okay, what is that? And it says, anything less than God that is given the worship due only to Him. But honestly, I kind of felt like I already knew that. But I, I, So I'm like, okay, let me just keep digging. What is worship? So I turned to worship. Millard Erickson, what is worship? And he says, it's offering homage, honor, and praise to God. So I took... I took all that and tried to kind of use the transitive property of math and substitute some things in here. And I, so I came up with this systematic definition. Idolatry is offering homage, honor, and prayer to anything less than God. But honestly, that still felt very um, theological and lofty as I'm trying to wrap my mind around it. So I, I still continued to think about these words and I looked... I looked up the word homage, and I found the word respect, and then I'm like, okay. And I looked up the word praise, and guys, I found this word, adoration. And so, and, and I'm just looking in like, just like an English dictionary, and this word adoration, and they used it in a sentence, he gave her a look of adoration. And, and it's a word that means like fondness. When I was um, 15, my dad gave me his old truck. It was a 77 Chevy uh, C10. Did you know in 1977, this is, you can check it, check, check me on this, but I've been told and I've read this. In 1977, the fastest production vehicle, 0 to 60, was the Chevy Silverado that came with the 454. And that's what I had. I was a bad man. And, but it was two-wheel drive, and all my buddies had four-wheel drives. And so my dad, when I was 16, he helped me. We converted it to four-wheel drive. And there was a guy in Hiram, Paulding County, and he helped us do it. And I put six-inch lift kit on it, and I put 38-inch groundhogs. You guys are like, man, that guy really is a redneck. My word. <laughs> Preaching with a shovel in his hand, talking about <laughs> But... And I got it painted, and it was two-tone. It was, the, the tones were Santa and buckskin. I, was the, I, I really was the coolest man in Georgia <laughs> at 16. But I can remember, guys, I can remember when I would get to school in my truck, I would get out, and I would take about 10 steps toward the school. And this is no lie. I would look back at my truck. Because I was just so fond of it. And even to this day, sometimes I'll wash my vehicle or, or you know, or, and I'll just, you know, just, I just, I adore that, you know, I adored that trip. So, I mean, it was just, it meant the world to me. I, I love that truck. And we do that with our children and, or our wives. If we're going to be on a trip and we're going to be going away and, and they're getting on an airplane or we're getting on an airplane, you know, we're getting that last look, aren't we? Because we're fond, there's this adoration. And so the Lord asked me a question. I don't know what he's asking you. This is what God asked me last week. Do you adore me? Do you adore Christ? Like, are you just 
wanting to get one more glance at the beauty of Jesus. And this question has shaken me this week. Because I didn't like my answer. I was actually very ashamed of my answer. John Calvin said, Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. And Paul said in Romans chapter 1 that if God leaves us alone, every one of us will naturally be an idolater. That's what will happen. And that we will worship the creator the creature rather than the creator. So I just, I, I asked God, I'm like, Lord, I need, I need to repent. I, I need to be able to somehow stand before these men and, and just try to help them understand what is idolatry. And so I asked God to give me a verse and he showed me Colossians 3, 5. And I want to put it on the screen here. And Paul said this. He said, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And so I'm like, okay, that's a very significant verse. So I, I looked up the word which, which is just a little article in Greek, and it was singular. And then I looked to amounts to, which is really just the word to be or is in the original language, And so, and it too is singular. And so then I realized, it's not the whole list that's idolatry. It's that word greed. And so Paul has singled out one of those sins and said, this amounts to idolatry. And and so some of the translations say covetousness. In other words, it's this thing that you look at and you, and you, you have this desire for and you have this almost coveting attitude let you you treasure it and so i so finally i felt like i had come up with a definition from god's word that 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 i could really that meant something in my heart and so here's what i wrote idolatry is treasuring something more than christ So in Joshua 24, everybody is talking a good talk, but nobody's burying idols. And I want to say to you men this morning, God's really not interested in a bunch of talk. God's not interested in a bunch of words. Guys, the Lord wants us to do whatever we need to do to position ourselves and our families so that we can fear Him, we can serve Him in, in, in sincerity and truth. And so I think what happened is the people in, at Shechem in Joshua 24, they talked a big talk and then they went home and they either hid their idols, but here's what I think they did. I think they renamed them. I think they went home and said, that's not an idol, that's my hobby. I think they renamed them, that's not an idol, those are my kids. That, that's not an idol, that's my job. That's not an idol, that's my ministry. And so see, guys, our idols today are not necessarily golden calves and Asherah poles and... 
idol, uh, altars in high places, but really I think our idols today are comfort, convenience, control. In the Old Testament, the idols were, you know, idolatry was the worship of man-made objects. I think today idolatry is when we make man the object of worship. And Todd and I were talking, coming in this morning. You know, we, we have a Chinese restaurant across the road from our church, and they're, they're Buddhist, and there's a, there's a fat Buddha by the door. But I told Todd this morning, I think we are the fat Buddha. And, and when we live our lives dedicated to securing our own comfort and our own convenience and our own control, we've become our own idol. But I still, I'm still wrestling with this question. Why did they not bury their idols? And I really think the answer is, is found in Judges 2.10. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord nor yet the work which He had done for Israel. And I thought, man, it's very significant that the writer did not say there arose a new, another generation that worshipped idols. That was not the root cause. That was a symptom. The root cause was there arose a generation that did not know the work the Lord had done for His people. And if you look back at Joshua 24, 31... Joshua 24, 31 says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, watch this, and had known all the deeds of the Lord that He had done for Israel. That passage in Colossians 3 that we had up on the screen, it it begins with the word therefore. When you see that, you always look back, don't you, to see what it's there for. Colossians 3, 3 and 4 says this. Paul says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. We, we had a, a terrible tragedy in our community about a year and a half ago. An Amish family in a little town about 30 miles south of our church. The man was working on his, on his property and he had a skid loader. And he totally accidentally, he didn't even know his little boy had come outside, he backed over his son with a skid loader. And I know this is extremely graphic. But the only way he knew that he had done it is he heard his son's skull crack. And I mean, to think that you crushed your son with a skid loader. And I love you guys, and I I think the world, I'd do anything for you, but to think that I would take John David or Paul Robert, and I would run over them with a skid loader for you, I I can't wrap my mind around that. But man, Isaiah 53, 10 says... The Lord was pleased to crush him. 
I mean, just think about that. God the Father crushing His Son. And the Bible says that He put Him to grief and as a result of the anguish of His soul, He will see it and be satisfied. What in the world is going on there? God the Father is satisfied with the atonement. With the payment that was paid. So he can look at me and you and say, it is finished. It is over. You are innocent. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. As he will bear their iniquities. And so, I really think, here's the deal, guys. A rich awareness of the gospel is the antidote for idolatry. It's the antidote for idolatry. I took my wife on a date Tuesday night last week. And I'd been wrestling with this sermon and this text. And I was very, very frustrated I just felt like I couldn't do anything with it. And we were sitting in a restaurant there on the square in Sheraton, and my, and my wife said, what is wrong with you? And I just was very real. I said, honey, I've lost my joy. And she looked at me, and she's a godly lady, and, 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 and she said, joy is Jesus, and you have not lost him. And, and, I, and I began to articulate what God was doing in my heart. And I said, honey, I said, I had a lot of joy when the church was growing 100 people a year. And I said, We've, we're kind of on a plateau and there's struggles. And, and, I, and I recognized that my ministry, and there's... Red flag number one, my ministry has become an idol. And I began to realize that I'm, I'm looking to ministry and church growth and preaching. I, I'm, I'm looking to all these things for joy. That makes it an idol. Because I'm treasuring ministry more than I'm treasuring Christ. And, and I came to try to help you guys See your idols. And the Lord hit me with a shovel. He said, dude, you're an idolater. That same passage in Colossians 3, Paul said, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts, To God, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. And so Paul was saying, whatever you do, do it in the name of Jesus, thankful for the gospel. Thankful that Jesus has made you alive. So if you preach, preach because you treasure Christ. And if you sell insurance, sell insurance because you treasure Christ. And if you golf, hit the golf ball because you treasure Christ. And what's the litmus test? 
I think the litmus test is, do you have an attitude of gratitude? Pastor, how would I know? Let me, let me boil it down like this. Do you have joy? I mean, that's really the litmus test for idolatry. Do you have joy? Because if you don't have joy, you got a thankfulness problem. And I was treasuring ministry more than I was treasuring the fact that God the Father crushed Jesus so that I could live. I want to finish with a strange verse. And I'll tell you why it's strange. Because it seems to come out of nowhere. 1 John chapter 5, there's this letter John wrote, one of the three epistles that John wrote. And John wrote it, a lot of you know this, John wrote it because early forms of Gnosticism had crept into the church. And so Gnosticism basically taught that it was based on dualism, what that Plato taught, where spirit is good, matter, material things are evil, and there's this great gulf between them. And so anything materialistic is evil, only spirit is good. Of course, Gnosticism led to all kind of heresy. How could Jesus be God? Because he was matter, right? Or how could Jesus be man? And I mean, it was all these crazy heresies that grew out of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism taught that there was this, what they call, esoteric knowledge that only the true Christians were those that had this higher secret knowledge. And so it was big on knowledge, and so John writes because the, church, the people in the church are beginning to doubt their salvation. They're beginning to buy into these early forms of Gnosticism. They're beginning to believe, maybe I'm not saved because I don't have this higher knowledge. And so you get to the very end of 1 John and there's this verse and it just seems so, it's like, it doesn't even, it's like somebody added it after, we know they didn't, but it's like, where did that come from? 1 John 5, 21, John says, Little children... Guard yourselves from idols. And I remember for all my life I thought, what in, where, why did he say that? This letter has nothing to do with idols. And then last week, God's like the light bulb came on for me and I began to realize our tendency for idolatry is greatest when our awareness of the gospel is weakest. And so then I thought, let me just look again. What did John just say before he said that? And he said this in the three verses prior to that, verse 21. He said, we know. Now remember, this whole higher knowledge thing is the issue. We know. That's that word knowledge, gnosko. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him. This is talking about Jesus Keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Next verse. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, but not us. We belong to God. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Man, guys... You're never going to see the beauty of the gospel until you understand depravity and that you didn't wake up one day and say, you know what, I think I believe in Jesus today. No, you've been given understanding so that we may know Him. 
who is true. And we, listen, we don't just know Him. We are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And it's on the heels of that that John says, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. And so I've realized that John ended his epistle with this command because he knew that their gospel forgetfulness made them ripe for idolatry. And so I wrote this down, just kind of a little quote. Men overwhelmed by the grace of God have little desire to worship idols. My daughter, she's 19, she sent me a a message the other day. And we have a covenant with one another. That she, um, part of the covenant with me helping her guard her heart and helping her find the man that God may have for her to marry one day if he so chooses her to be married is she's committed not to text guys, communicate with guys um, in these private ways. And so um, she sent me this message the other day. And uh, here's what she says. The devil just attacked me big time. Three different guys just texted me in the same ten minutes. And she mentions their names. Like, what in the world? That is so Satan. Anyway, I replied to Caleb's message. This is a boy in another state that she met in Africa when we were over there. He's from Maine. I replied to Caleb's message asking me how I was doing. And I sent him that same video of the kids that I sent you earlier. And and we both agreed how we missed Malawi. The conversation was very short and it ended quickly. But I immediately felt that I had been conquered by Satan. And in that moment I knew I had to tell you. And she said it was wrong and I want to be honest. I'm telling you right now. And this is my reply. Okay, I'm praying for you. You may have lost one small battle, but there, but you may have lost one small battle there, but you're not going to lose this war. Ultimately, Christ has won. And it's through confession and repentance that we enjoy his victory. And then I'm going to read the rest of it. I had a cussing fit in my mind yesterday and I feel very ashamed of it. We are both in very intense spiritual warfare. When I was a boy, I would cuss in my mind. Satan is trying to take us back to former bondage. He is attacking you because he watches you and he knows where you are weak. I forgive you and I will continue to trust you. Pastor Paul, you, seriously, you cussed in your mind last week? I did. I had a very, very weak moment. I was very, I was struggling because I was, God was showing me idolatry in my life. I wasn't ready for that. And I was under attack and I said, in my mind, I said some words in frustration that I'm very ashamed of. But I want to tell you something. The penalty... 
the hell that that deserved, those cuss words in my mind deserved, was put on Christ. That God the Father crushed Jesus so that as I stand before you right now, positionally with God, I am not guilty. I want to end with a picture of a man. Here's a picture of a guy. You don't know him. His name is Basim Herz Atalah. Two weeks ago, he was on his way home from work with his brother, Osama, and a Muslim friend. When three men, 23 to 25 years old, in black jackets, called out to them... Two of the young men were carrying automatic weapons. A third had a pistol and their faces were uncovered. Basim lived in northern Egypt. Because the men were unmasked, the brothers thought they were the police. They asked to see Basim Hurts Atala's hand because many cops in COPTS Coptic Christians in Egypt bear a small tattoo of a cross on their wrists. Let me tell you why. It's because when they go into their secret church meetings, they show the tattoo. And if there's no tattoo, they don't get in because they would be letting a terrorist in. After seeing his tattoo, the militants asked him if he was a Christian. And he boldly replied that he was. The militants dismissed the Muslim, identified only as Muhammad, after confirming that he was not a Christian. The gunman then asked Basim, uh, Basim's brother to show them his hand. Basim mentioned they ought to leave his brother alone because he had five children. His brother said, I had a cross on my hand, but it was on the top of my hand and my sleeve had covered it. His brother said... That the gunman apparently didn't realize they were brothers. They thought he was a Muslim. They shot two shots next to my leg and told me to leave. And then as I was leaving, they shot my brother in the head. My mother did not bear the shock when she learned about the killing of Basim. Our house turned into screaming and crying. We did not imagine that what had happened had happened. The gunmen were walking in the street without any objection. And their faces were open to everyone. And they were not arrested. And this happened two weeks ago in northern Egypt. And I thought about Basim and I thought about Basim treasured Christ more than he treasured his own life. Why? Because he knew that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. Nick's going to come up and we're just going to close out in prayer. And man, I, I don't know if God has revealed any idols in your life or not. But I really believe, having studied this text, we're in Shechem right now. And I really believe um, that, that maybe God's standing with a shovel. And He's saying, 
Men, put away the gods that are in your midst. And I'm telling you, there's only one motivation that will ever suffice for you to do that. And that is the treasure of Christ. And that is for you to know the deeds. For you to know the work that God has done on our behalf at Calvary. And that young man that was texting me a couple of days ago telling me that he was going to leave his wife and that he was going to throw her away because she didn't make him happy. I sent him a picture from Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, and it was a picture of Jesus on the cross. And I said to this guy, I said, If you really believe that at the cross Jesus paid, and this guy's a policeman, the legal debt... For every one of your sins, including your adulterous relationship with this other woman. Then let the gospel be what motivates you not to throw your wife away. And not to let happiness be the idol of your life. Because really guys, that's the only hope that he has to to turn back to his wife and not throw her away and trample the gospel like that. It's to see what God has done for him. And so as Nick begins to play, um, Brother Todd, why don't you come up here and just, you just hold the shovel as the lead pastor of this church family. I know there's a lot of other church families represented here. But this is Shechem. Like, this is the living word of God. This is God saying, men, will you put away the gods in your midst?